Welcome to the Anything Goes podcast, the best geek and pop culture podcast broadcasting from Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rooney, and we're back with another movie review, and we're continuing on our retrospective of Christopher Nolan's filmography leading up to Dunkirk. We're looking at every single movie he has done up until Dunkirk, and once that movie comes out, me and my guest will also, my guest and I, I should say, will be reviewing that movie as well. As you can tell from the title, we're talking about the movie Insomnia, the third movie in his feature feature length filmography, came out in two thousand two. But before we go any further, I let me introduce my guest, who is with me today. I am Justin Cerlo, back again. Tim, you have to excuse me. I haven't gotten much sleep recently. Oh, is is that is that a fact? Yes. And well, it, uh, why haven't you been getting that much sleep? Well, uh, it certainly isn't because of the sunlight that's been perpetuating through Long Island twenty four seven. Yes, that's for true. <laughs> oh, my, oh God. <laughs> Oh, God. No. All right. Before we go any further, there's a joke. Uh, one of the podcasts I listened to. The a six joke of, already. Yeah. Yeah. My life. Um, there's a podcast I listened to called the 605 Super Podcast, and it's all about wrestling history throughout the territories for like the past 100 years of wrestling. And they, in, they have several segments where they bring up old promos. They make kind of like caricatures of like really bad moments in wrestling. And one of the guys doing an interview is like, Guy's like, the, when he turns babyface, when he turns to be a good guy, and he's like, yeah, I'm sorry that happened. It's just so lackluster of him becoming a good guy wrestler. And the interviewer's like, is that for true? And, <laughs> and it's becoming a running joke. Like, even people amongst the comments are just like, is that for true? And now I said it on my show. God damn it. I, I have, I'm going to have to just, like, take out this piece of audio and send it to the host and be like, see what this show is doing to me. I'm saying it in my normal in my everyday life now. But let's not ramble on anymore. Let's jump into our review of Insomnia right now. first time you heard about this and when was the actual time you actually sat down and watched the movie of insomnia i swear i can remember um seeing the trailer for it when i was a kid uh maybe not i don't think i saw the theatrical trailer but i remember seeing the uh the tv spots for it and boy this came out in 2002 you said yes i was 13 mm-hmm. turning 13 that year so I just threw it as a way as, like, some movie yeah, just that every I was thriller. not going to see. Right. Um, ten years goes by, I eventually get into uh, the Nolan movies. And uh, as I'm pretty sure I've uh, talked about uh, when we've reviewed the first two Nolan movies, the summer after our first semester at Oswego, I got into this really big... Um, Nolan kick, because mm-hmm. that's when Dark Knight Rises was about to come out. And uh, that summer, Netflix had The Following, which we watched, mm. Memento, which we watched, 
and um, uh, Insomnia, which we watched. Yeah. And I remember telling you that I watched Following and Memento, like, back-to-back on one weekend. Mm -hmm. And then maybe a month later at most, uh, there was a boring Friday night at my house, and I just decided to put on Insomnia, and... It put you to sleep? It didn't put me to sleep, but <laughs> I don't know. I was expecting just so much more from it the first time I was watching it because it was Christopher Nolan and literally every other movie that I had seen uh, had been spectacular. And this, the first time I watched it, I was not really impressed with it. Maybe it's just because I went in expecting too much. Maybe my mindset that night wasn't in the right place mm. for this sort of movie. Um, for whatever reason, I didn't like it the first time. And I came into tonight's viewing with very low in, very, uh, very low expectations. I almost said inception, yes. which, is, which we'll get to eventually. <laughs> um, but yeah, I... I jokingly said to you right before we hit the play button on this movie, let's get this over with. Because this, in my opinion, is the last really difficult Nolan movie to get through. Because after this, you have the Batman movies and Prestige and Inception and so on. So, first time I watched it, not really impressed. Um, great cast, mm -hmm. obviously. Um, Al Pacino, the late, the, the late Robin Williams, who the first time I watched was fortunately still alive. Mm -hmm. uh, Hilary Swank, um, and a couple of supporting characters here and there, but really it's it's, those, it's driven by those three. Yeah, I mean, like what was it? The one, like the other actress that really stands out to me. Uh, near the end of the movie oh, is the uh, more yeah more tyranny who plays Rachel the innkeeper and I like I'll get to it later but like we'll get to that scene more when we're doing our breakdowns in the movie but I love her scene uh, much like you I may have saw a trailer for this um, I'm not too sure it must have been like maybe. I've not seen theaters, and maybe I think my mom may have rented something and had a trailer for this on the tape. And I was like, both of us were like, oh, that seems interesting. Like Al Pacino and Robin Williams. And this is kind of around the time when Robin Williams did this in One Hour Photo, where yeah. both those movies where he plays a killer and he plays a very serious role rather than his like cartoon character come to life whether that you've seen in like mrs doubtfire and etc so the this was a time to take notice of robin williams becoming i want to say a serious actor because he was always a serious actor but he was playing it more straight he was not playing the funny man serious roles yeah um so that was obviously to take notice and al pacino was in it so like oh okay and so we end up watching it when it like came out in home video the first time and kind of like you, they were just like, oh, that was interesting. I remember, I remember the climax. I remember the shootout at the end. That one thing uh, stuck out to me in particular, as well as the the effects of the insomnia having an Al Pacino throughout the movie. Like that kind of stuck out with me. Like the snap rack focuses, which we'll get to in a second. But 
brief synopsis, what what is well, I'll, actually, I'll do it. Actually, I'll, I'll do it myself. Insomnia is about a murder that happens in Alaska. Two detectives from Los Angeles called up to investigate. Um, they don't really think it's that big of a deal that they have to do this because at the same time, this investigation is going on. There's an investigation going on in Los Angeles in, with internal affairs, with their department. So this is kind of like a buzz-off assignment so they don't have to deal with that while that's going on in L.A. while they deal with this crime up north. So, and hijinks ensue and things go awry. I, I love it, like, you use the hijinks to ensue for any kind of situation, like, like Wizard of Oz, a tornado happens and hijinks ensue. Or Lord of the Rings, there's a ring, there's some elves, there's some orcs, and hijinks ensue. It's a blank statement that can be used in, in a plethora of situations. Like hijinks ensue always on this podcast. Oh, of course. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, where else would you expect hijinks if not this show? I don't know. Yeah. So a movie opens up with the they shot like a lot of arrow stuff in Iceland, and. And as well as in Alaska. No, it wasn't Iceland. It was actually British Columbia. I don't know why. They shot Iceland for Interstellar. Yes. Uh, yes. For when they were on the uh, man's planet. Oh, it's a weird way of phrasing it now. I'm thinking about it. But, uh, you mean Earth? <laughs> we'll, we'll, get to the, we'll get to the very over uh, subtlety hammer subtext when we get to Hugh, Interstellar man. there. What a name. Uh, he wasn't named was Hugh. Was it? I thought it was. I thought it was just referred to as Dr. Man. I don't think I ever heard his first name. I thought you told me his name was Hugh Man. Well, check IMDb while, while we're going down okay. all this, while well, this is going on. And so I mistakenly thought it was Iceland. I apologize, folks. Yeah, it's, a, it's he, out in the he, British he, Columbia. And compared to the first two, his first two movies, Nolan's uh, movies are following and Memento, which were a small budget. Like, Graham, one was shot. Super low budget, micro budget, sixteen millimeter in England, and then Memento had like a two or three million dollar budget and shot in California, and opens up with this great aerial footage, and it's breathtaking. And Nolan's eyes for kind of the crystal blues really start to become uh, apparent in this movie. So, do you have an answer, sir? Not yet. Ah, well. Uh, anyway, but while it's going on, we get the first indication of the murder that where. The only time that Dorman really gets to sleep is actually on the way up until Alaska as they go to uh, the town. And they're uh, greeted by Detective uh, Ellie. He's just credited as Dr. Man. I thought so. I mean, that would be too on the nose. Grand, like, there are times where, like, his writing is very on the nose, especially in that movie. Yeah. But I think that would have been, like, really somebody along the way. Be like, like, you know, that's a little so dark night. All right, I guess I'll shut up then. <laughs> that's the only that's, that's his uh, that's his card. He gets to drop down whenever like so many questions. Like, hey, you think it's a really dumb idea, Dark Knight? <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Like, but we're setting a camera to the sun, Dark Knight. All right, fine. Okay. <laughs> so, okay, boss. This <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, exactly. A bunch of like a Barney's just being the ones that are uh, single fans to Nolan's team when they're making movies now. Uh, your feelings on the interaction, like the aerial footage coming, in, and then when they meet uh, Ellie, the detective, who's like kind of a handler when they're in Alaska. Oh, it's, it's a great opening to this movie. Uh, I'm all for these like interesting opening title sequences, especially when they're presented. Like one, it sets the 
the stage and the scene for the movie because mm-hmm. it introduces you to the middle of goddamn nowhere yeah. in Alaska in the summer, which is why you get the, the title Insomnia because it's So north to, and the sun never sets. Yeah. Literally, you, you – I think my, my parents used to live in Alaska. I don't think they were quite as far north as in this movie, but mm-hmm. um, they lived in Fairbanks, and they said at the summer go down maybe for three hours in the day. Before you go any further, why were your parents living in Alaska? That's... My dad was stationed in the Air Force uh, in there back in the late 80s. Really? Yeah. That's fascinating. Like, I like. I just want to hear story. I, like, I wish your dad was here to tell stories about that. that I, day. Yeah, I, I should have asked them. Like, how difficult was it to fall asleep in preparation for this? But, right. Uh, uh, and your and your feelings. In- alas. Oh. <laughs> well, I've had a good life. Good night, everybody. Good night, Justin. Good night. <laughs> Uh, your feelings of Hilly Swank's introduction? Um, she seems like that super fan, like you know when when you like are dying to meet like your favorite athlete or filmmaker or mm. something like that, and you just like you don't know what to say when you see them. Yeah, that's Hilary Swank throughout this movie. Right, it's. Like I, I like I don't want to write down like a brown nose or anything like that, but she's clearly. It definitely seems like the situation. Where like, all right, we have a detective Dormer and Hap coming up to deal with this investigation. Who wants to handle? I will. I feel like she's like the person who jumped up to yeah. take this assignment. Uh, we have a pedophile. Pedophile? Is there a pedophile? Yeah. I'm, I'm pedophile. I'm pedophile. That's an IT crowd reference. I'm not a pedophile. People. Uh, I've been speaking of, of, of British television. You know, I was going to say, like, that's an awkward transition for that, situation, for that conversation. <laughs> yeah, speaking of pedophiles. Um, <laughs> no, but speaking of British television, you know, it, it reminds me of, like, in Doctor Who, when, like, it's like this random guest character, like, knows all about the Doctor and, like, the entire episode whenever they're on screen. It's like, oh, subtle reference to the past, subtle reference to the past. That's what Hillary Swank's character reminds me of in this. I mean, it could be worse. It could be a whole group of people waiting uh, the doctor to turn. <laughs> they can join a, a Christian rock band and deal with a monster that has faces coming out of their own skin. That's true. I mean, <laughs> fuck. That's probably one of the worst episodes of the new series of Doctor Who. No, I wasn't even referencing that like episode. I, I know. Like, there, are, you know, you, you, there's usually like about one per season where, like, you know, someone will go Hillary Swank. In insomnia, in a Doctor Who episode, you never want to go Hillary Swank in insomnia. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, during we're well, dealing with a doctor. That's, that's when that's when shit hits the fan. I mean, you, you kind of wish you had like a, a your own personal to come in tempo with your time. Like, no, 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 not today. Not not in Fairbanks. So, Ellie picks up Hap. Uh, and Detective Dormer, played by Al Pacino, hooah, uh, as they take it, go on down to the station. It's referenced about the internal affairs investigation that's going on at the same time, and they introduce the detectives, Ellie and the other detective that's on the case with them, and 
They go and see the body for... He wants to see the body for his... Like, Detective Dormer insists on seeing the body in, in his, um, with his own eyes because that's just, that's just his prerogative and that's how his way of doing things. So... So we get this. We get to meet Kate, the victim that's that started the case. She's the MacGuffin of this story, pretty much. Um, and during the scene, the detective keeps referencing. Um, uh, detective Duggar keeps referencing that all the stuff, all this information is in the files that they had already did in their preliminary investigation, and Dorman notices things that were not in the file, like especially like her her nails were clipped post mortem. And there's immediate tension with the group between the outsiders and the home and home team. Did you notice that? Yeah. And how, where do you think that comes from? Do you feel like it's just like do you feel like the detectives like the of the town that they're in, night you like do you think they feel kind of that's where I was not as they push this side, but belittled because they have to bring out outside investigators yeah, in the situation. I, I think Whoever decided to bring in these uh, these hotshot LAPD officers, I guess, thought the uh, the local boys were a little bit out of their depth with this sort of stuff because uh, Elodie Spank says like most of the stuff we deal with is like bar fights and domestic violence. <laughs> I suddenly remembered a line from Skyrim that one of the uh, the town watch. People always says to you, most of my job is just breaking up bar fights and catching children stealing. It's been a while since we've had a good bandit raid. <laughs> That's what I think most of this, most of the police department feels like. It's like, yeah, we're just, we haven't done anything in a while. We probably could handle this if we did it more often. Right. But like... This is the first time anything's happened in this town like this. It almost makes you wish there was a scene of the police officers protesting, the local cops protesting the fact that they need outside cops to yeah. kind of be part, be part of the investigation. And why from L.A.? They couldn't find anyone from, like, Seattle? You, you figured. I mean, I understand the chief, the chief the chief Nybeck obviously has a – uh, connection with these cops like he has a personal history with yeah that's Hap and dormer back in la and i guess it was just coincidence that they were able to do that now obviously this movie is a remake of a 1999 swedish film and same thing where they're so far north that the sun just never sets and stellan skarsgård you you will probably remember <laughs> yes he's the one that plays the dormer character in that movie and i'm just like um, there's a magic. I've not seen the original. I really want. To. I think that is an experiment. We should watch the original. Yeah, it seems pretty sweet. Yeah, and I'm just like because anything with still the scars guards in it. Yes. Uh, oh, sh- oh, <laughs> fuck you! It took you know, it, like it, ten seconds to get that. It was. A, you know what? It was a slow burn. You know what? But I got it. It was your face. I was like, why would he make that face? Like, oh right. Whoops. <laughs> I mean, you know, like, you know who I, do you know who I feel like when that moment? That's who I feel like. I'm not going to repeat the, the the hand joke I just made referring to one of our college friends. Anyway, during the scene where we're dealing with Kate's body, we do see the quick flashes of the actual event of the of her murder, and this is kind of the first. This is kind of a trait that an editing technique that 
Nolan used all memento, the quick flashes of something, a previous event, especially with the attack on uh, Guy Pierce's wife that, mm-hmm. that caused him to have his injury, uh, on Lenny's uh, wife anyway, and we'll see continue in Batman Begins. Now, we find out the killer took his time and cleaned up the body and everything. Was this, what, what did you think about that? When you heard about that, rather there was not a crime of passion that the person was methodical in his cleaning up of Kate's body. Uh, kind of seems like really creepy, s- almost serial killer like. Uh, right. Even though, I guess the first time he's killed someone. Yeah. But like, you get the feeling if if he went through all of that, and he had the opportunity to do it again. He probably would do it to another person, too. Right. Um, and you definitely seem like you kind of imagine what... Because we do not see the killer until, like, halfway through the movie. We don't, we don't have even a conversation with him. So your mind kind of starts imagining what kind of person it is. And it's coupled with the fact that with the quick flashes of the murder that we see in Dormer Subconscious. And you kind of imagine, like, what kind of monster would do this? And it's a nice swerve when we find out who really did it. And so Ellie takes, like, we find out that the sun never sets. And then he's like, oh, oh, I, I, ooh, oh. Yeah. I, knew, I knew about that. Oh. And they take him back. They take him back to the, the uh, motel that they're staying in. Hap confesses to the fact that he's been talking to internal affairs about the situation that's going on in L.A., that he's going to turn evidence, including evidence against Dormer. Or he's not gonna like he's not gonna like go out of his way to point fingers, but like if the questions are asked, he's gonna say something. In Hap's defense, he says like, like your career stellar. They're not gonna be able to find anything on you. Dormer makes reference to a case with a character named Dobbs, and we don't find out what happened with that. What? How do you feel about this scene? About the two of them in the motel having this argument? It's a lot of underlying tension, right? Like you can, you can tell that Dormer just wants to tell him, "Look, stay out of this and shut the hell up." Yeah, because it's it's just gonna get messy from here if you if you start turning in evidence, mm-hmm. and you kind of want to side with Hap because he's doing what would legally be the right thing to do. Right. Um, and it really makes, the film really makes you, puts you in a position to, to decide what's really more ethically correct. The fact that a bad person goes to jail even though potentially at a trial you couldn't prove it or you know, is the proper use of law and order the correct way to go, even if it means someone who is probably guilty is going to walk. Right, and it's something I'm thinking about now. Like, the question of ethics is a theme throughout this entire movie, Mm -hmm. whether it be Dormer's uh, interactions with the killer, um, with his previous cases, as well as Ellie kind of discovering what happens later, in the, the second investigation that begins, 
and I'm thinking about this now, the idea of what's morally right and what's ethic like and what's perceived to be right is something that plays throughout the his first three movies because in following the main character agrees to go and breaking and entering, even though he's frightened of it at first. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, you don't do that. You don't go ruffling through people's stuff. But he does it anyway. He does eventually do that. And you think of Memento, where my wife deserves vengeance. He doesn't deserve justice. Vengeance. And that's what leads Lenny on, in, on that path of doing it. And then you have here, where this kind of question of the law becomes a big one, where you don't know... If you should do what is society in societal expectations, what's right, or what your personal expectations of what is right? Exactly. That's the really cool thing about this movie compared to the first two. Is it the first two puts you on more of the criminal side of that? Right. What's wrong and what's right? This one sort of turns the table and puts you from uh, a police perspective. What's wrong and what's right is bending the rules, uh, perhaps necessary at certain points in time to make sure that what you think is proper justice ends up being served. Right. And then you even continue that into Batman Begins where the scales of justice are being skewed because of corruption throughout Gotham. And that's what Mm -hmm. leads Bruce Wayne to becoming Batman because his family cannot get justice. And he doesn't feel like, and the questions of what true justice between Ra's al Ghul and what Batman considers what is justice in his eyes becomes the, the bashing moment of like between them, that becomes the schism between their relationship, but we'll get to that eventually. And so the following day we Meet Kate's boyfriend, who is a suspect in the case, and is is something I realize. Like, okay, you're a young actor, you're sitting across a table from Al Pacino, and you have to yell at him. <laughs> it's not you got to curse at him. He's like, he's just like, he's like, fuck you, you're a little prick in the jacket. Like, who the hell do you think you are? And I'm like, it's got to be a little nerve wracking for an actor to do that. Yeah. Was this the first film he was in? I'm looking that up now. Perhaps the last. No, no, no. He was in other stuff. He was in stuff after this. Okay. But, um... No, he was in a few movies and, and some TV before this. Okay. But, yeah, I think this seems like... Oh, um... He was on... Who is he, anyway? Is The actor's name is Jonathan Jackson. Uh, <laughs> Relation to Matt? <laughs> no. <laughs> Hi, Justin. How you doing? Hi, Matt. <laughs> um, and your feelings in this scene where it's revealed that he was abusive to his girlfriend. <laughs> he's sort of... He's... He's that guy in high school who needs to get beat up by someone. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, you're saying he deserves to get an ass-whooping? Yeah. <laughs> pretty much. And... Uh, Al Pacino basically gives one to him. Not... Physically, but verbally. Yeah. And gets gets him to admit what happened. Right. And he levels with him, and he kind of, and like when Randy, the boyfriend, reveals what happened between him and Kate the night that she died, 
he backs off. He immediately recognizes this is not a this guy's not a killer. He may talk the talk, but he does not walk the walk. He's just a a loudmouth. When you talk the talk, you, you walk, walk the walk. walk. Left foot, right foot. <laughs> it's funny because the Golden and I quoted that last episode too. Go figure. Squint your eyes, make you think you're crazy. Hide your eyes. Reveal them. <laughs> and so they find Kate's backpack with a, with a bunch of her personal belongings in there, as well as a, a crime uh, novel written by Walter Finch. And they have her put out that, like, hey, let's fill it up with fake books, put it back where we found it, and put it on, on the wire and all the TV and radio stations saying, well, hey, we're looking for Kate's backpack. Go back to the location and see if the guy shows up. They Great do. plan in theory. Yes. <laughs> Great plan. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so they stake out this one cabin where the the bag was found. And a dude in a... Uh, I wouldn't say it was a uh, raincoat pretty much shows up. And country bumpkins handing the megaphone over to uh, Al Pacino. And they accidentally <laughs> turns like... I screech and echoes throughout the valley. Yeah, if you're wondering why the Alaskan Police Department brought in two hotshot cops from L.A., this scene is why. <laughs> this is another scene where they recreate the crime that happens after this. And so the killer gets spooked, runs into the cabin. The police descend on the cabin from all locations, kick in the door. Dude's not there. And they realize there's a trap drawer and leads into a stream that's running underneath it and okay and even Al Pacino brings this up at this point like why the fuck didn't they check out that cabin before they went in the <laughs> like sure like you're this is a sting operation I'm pretty sure you could have looked in that cabin like yeah the nose knows I know and there's a moment where like Al Pacino orders them to follow, go outside and follow him and he's gonna follow him in the tunnel and he jumps down I'm like Oh bullshit, man! You're like Al Pacino, like you jumping down that little, little stair, that um, ladder hatchway. No, your no. knees would buckle twenty years. Well, there's that, and then there's the scene where he has to climb over the fence. Oh yeah, <laughs> like, I'm like, um, excuse me, wait a second. Okay, which I did write this down. I guess we can bring him down. Is Al Pacino too old for this role? I'd say just a little bit. It seems a little bit past his prime. It seems, um, I think if they had toned down the, the overly physical scenes, like him jumping down a ladder, him trying to top over a fence, him running, him running over wooden logs over an Alaskan stream and nearly drowning to death. Yeah, I, I mean... The two like filmmakers that clearly influenced Christopher Nolan are Ridley Scott and Michael Mann, and the like, two big movies in their, those respective filmographies that influenced Christopher Nolan is Blade Runner, which we'll see a lot of the influence in Batman Begins, and Heat, which we'll definitely see a lot of it in, in when it comes to Dark Knight. Now, Al Pacino was a, was was the lead in Heat along with Robert De Niro, so I guess he that Nolan jumped at the chance. To work with Al Pacino because, like, hey, you're one of my favorite movies of all time, and I got a chance to work with an actor? Yeah, I'll do it. And definitely seems 
this is just my, how I'm perceiving it, that the opportunity to work, work with him may have, and just the idea of that kind of hindered the movie overall. It doesn't, it doesn't destroy the movie. No, I, we are being nitpicky here. I will admit that. But it definitely seems something to call concern of. Yes, we're just... Yes, we're being nitpicky with that. And like, like with, uh, oh God, with tweezers or something like that. Like, that's how we're trying, we're trying to tear this part of the movie. So Dormer gives chase into the fog. He runs into the cop who was with, who blew the uh, cover in the first place. He gets shot by the suspect in the fog. Too bad didn't hit him in the head. Uh, <laughs> Whoa. Sorry. The guy was kind of a moron. He screwed, into, he screwed the pooch on this situation. He seemed like a nice guy and everything. <laughs> and he does have my, probably one of my favorite lines in the movie when they're going through Kate's bag to begin with. And he pulls up the like the crime novel like, another Walter Finch crime novel? Who reads this kind of crap? I read that kind of crap. <laughs> and just like kind of earnestness in that delivery of that line I really enjoy. And then, so he follows the killer out into the fog and gets lost in it. Your feelings on this scene? Really strange. I remember, it was strange the first time I watched it, and it was strange again tonight. It's... It's a wonderfully shot scene. Yeah. Because the environment that they're in, you as the audience, you also can't tell who is who. Right. Um... Pretty much the only character who you know is that character is uh, Dormer. Mm-hmm. Everyone else, you're just like, could be anyone. Yeah. Like, um, when the other cop gets shot by uh, Robin Williams, mm-hmm. you, you're you not sure, you're not sure who it was. Right. Or who it is. Um... And then later on the scene, when Dormer ends up shooting Hap, you still, for a second, are kind of thinking that, oh, he just shot the bad guy. Yeah. And it's obviously the movie is playing on the expectation, and Dormer runs up on the person he just shot, finds out it's Hap, and Dormer's like, oh shit, Try, takes off his tie to hold, to hold his partner together and keep him from bleeding out. And Hap immediately jumps to the fact, thinking that Dormer shot him on purpose. Now, at the end of the movie, which do that question is still vague. Yeah. It's like, I can't imagine why you would think that he's been in the same fog. Like, I'm sure he probably couldn't tell that that was, Dormer from that distance. No, but it's the argument they had the night previous and the overall attitude he's had him throughout the entire day and just digging at him at every chance. Now, yeah, I just remember the scene in Rogue One where she shoots the droid not knowing if it's K2SO oh, yeah, or not. <laughs> Did you know that was me? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, which it definitely, because like, there are many cases of, like, in real life where there's accidental shootings, and this seems totally believable, and I de- it definitely seems like it was an accident, but you can see from Half's perspective that maybe Dormer did it on purpose. I mean, that's kind of a horrible thought to cross your mind in your last moments on Earth. I mean, yeah. that's, the last, that's the last thing that's going through your head. Hmm. Am I being murdered? Yeah, or was this an accident? And no offense to the actor here, 
However, his death, like at least like him like collapsing like fully expe- ex- like expenditure like all of his. Oh uh, yeah, there's there's a really dramatic. Ugh. Not the most dramatic death in Nolan's filmography. No, no, we'll get to that. But this, I think, is like oh, <laughs> a, a strong contender for number two. I mean, I was like that thought came across my mind, and I'm just like, holy shit. <laughs> Does he have a problem shooting death scenes or what? I don't I don't understand. Anyway, and so Pacino's filling out a report to he's telling the chief what happened and says that the that the killer that they fall into the they follows into the fog, he was the one who shot him, and not Dormy. He does not admit to shooting Hap. He blames it on the killer. And he ends up calling Hap's wife. Now I, I, it was the one thing I, I definitely took note of is that Al Pacino crushes it in this scene. I think this is probably one of his best performances in the movie. Like he's kind of like seems like he's kind of like a little going through the motions up until this point. I mean, granted, you had that argument between him and Hap at the lodge, but this scene in particular with the woman on the phone playing Hap's wife, I think, was stellar. Mm. And your feelings on that? Good. Uh, yeah, and it's a little bit. Difficult too, because obviously they're not face to face. It's it's he's just speaking into um, a fake phone, mm-hmm. um, and it's basically just uh, just reactions, very much. Uh, yeah, a monologue, a, a reaction to uh, her lines, mm-hmm. but um, obviously it's got to be difficult to call. Yeah. Your uh, your partner's wife to inform her what happened. Yeah. And and like even the actress who played Hap's wife on the phone, I think she did a fantastic job too. Yeah. Let's not let's like I realized something like up until a point, this is like the best female performances that Nolan's got out of a movie thus far. Between her, who is just a voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hilary Swank, uh, the one, the woman who plays uh, Kate's friend, and uh, Maura Tierney, who plays Rachel, the, the who runs the lodge that he's staying in. All of them give it great performances, and you believe them. And so he hangs up the phone. He runs out into town, and he finally gets sick down an alleyway, and he discovers a dead dog in the alleyway. And it's in this moment where it's like the silhouette against. It's like the camera's down the alleyway, just looking down, and it's just really tight. And I realized, like, wow, Wally Pfister, the cinematographer who photographed every Nolan movie from Memento up until Dark Knight Rises, like, is strikingly beautiful here. And I, and I just really love that scene in particular. But, um, so Ellie gets reassigned to investigate what happened out in the fog. And it's funny. Now, I know, kind of like how. Dakota and I did a little video promoting our Young Justice review, our previous podcast, which you can find at iTunes.com, uh, under the Anything Goes podcast. Uh, and we're doing one for our next Nolan movie. I was thinking about doing a video for this podcast, and it's you and because I woke up early in the morning driving to work, and it was incredibly foggy out. <laughs> and the idea was like, you and I both in fog, I shoot you. And you're like, like what are you doing out here? I wanted to watch Insomnia. And I'm like, oh, shit, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but like I'm like and of course I'm like of course I think about it on the day because it was incredibly foggy out and I'm like 
can we is there like a fog tracker that I could find? I'm like, I couldn't find anything really conclusive. Like, all right, ne- never mind. Let's Boom. forget it. Yeah, exactly. So, and we were saying about like the cop being kind of inept. In Ellie's investigation and recreating the scene, the, the, the shooting that happened the day previous, and the, and the one guy is supposed to be like the first cop that was shot laying down. And he's just like, I don't want to be in that position. I'm like, fucking Keystone cop this guy. And he's just flipping the bird of the cop that's trying to help him with this investigation. Um, then uh, Dormer tries to get sleep after dealing with the IA representative who calls him to hassle him. And I, and I stop and I'm thinking to myself, how would you adjust to sleeping in a town where never, the sun never sets for a part of the year? Um, ask for more drapes. Yes. I mean, the conceit of this movie can be solved with an eye mask. Yeah. Ooh, good point. That's uh, that's the only uh, uh, issue I think I have with this movie. I'm like, this is easily solvable, especially in a town where the sun never sets. I feel like you can go to any local drugstore and get one. Just request a room in the basement. I mean... <sighs> I, I, I know it's like we're just trying to take a crowbar to this movie. We're not meaning to, but it's just something that's There's, rather blatant. Yeah, it's like, and obviously you and I have never been uh, through this up in Alaska, so we really don't know how difficult it is. No. But I feel like there are ways around it. Yeah, I mean, the joke about, like, at least with my family is that, like, at least the Rooney side of the family is that we can fall asleep anywhere. I know I can. I mean, hell, like, I fall asleep on the floor of us. We go, like, uh, sweets with just, like, using my yeah. jacket as a pillow in the middle of the day while people are in. You can fall asleep on the Oswego beds. You can fall asleep anywhere. Yeah, so I'm like, I, I, I would like to believe I wouldn't be able to have a problem with that as long as, like I said, had an eye mask. As long as I had a comfy bed, I think I'd be fine. It would be weird not, like, getting used to. Maybe that was it. Maybe his bed, you know, the, 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 the setting for the. The matches just wasn't... They didn't turn it down. Yeah. Shame. Just... <laughs> Sad. <laughs> All this could have been avoided if it wasn't for the, uh, the lodge, tenant, like the lodge uh, owner. Crooked lodge owner. Yeah. He had a crooked back. That's why. That's why he shot us for... Oh, my God. <laughs> so, in order to cover his ass, Dormer ends up shoot like... Because he confiscated the killer's gun who dropped it during the sh- during the fog chase he shoots the dead dog in the alleyway digs out the bullet the slug i know gross goes to at least he wore gloves yeah always want to be safe of course goes to the coroner in the hopes to switch the caliber switch the bullets out which he does and this is something i also brought up like okay the corners that used to be were getting shot, like with like small caliber bullets, usually hunting accidents. However, don't you think that should be part of, of the education to become a coroner? Is being able to recognize certain bullet types? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, that could be a stretch, but it definitely seems like actually no, that would be something uh, crime. The, no, the ballistics crime, would do. Ballistics would do. Okay, my bad. I take that back, people. So. He switches. He switches the cow. He switches the bullets out with the bullet they shot in the dog to make it look like the person who shot uh, Hap was the same person who shot the other cop. And this is when the real 
effects of the not being able to sleep take take a hold of Dormer, whereas like the snap rock focuses around the room of things in foreground and background. What do you think of that as well as the hallucination he's seeing happen during the search of the grounds where the bad guy was? And, and what do you think about those kind of techniques to illustrate how sleepy Dormer is? Uh, very good techniques. It really, it they're very brief and they're used very sparingly throughout the movie. They don't really overplay uh, Nolan doesn't overuse it. Right. He uses it when he has to. Yeah. And I think that's why it's an effective tool in this movie. Mm. Um, and it really happens in pivotal uh, character moments mm. for Dormer. Like, um, you know, when he's feeling the guilt. Um while they're out recreating the scene, while he's just about to switch out the ballistics, while mm. he's, I want to say, oh, um, when he and, uh, what's her name? What's the, um, Kay's friend? Oh, uh, the, the girl. Yes. As I look, her, I look her up, but like, you keep going on with your point. Uh, when he takes her to, the um, the dump to show her where the killer left uh, Kay's dead body. Uh, Tanya. Tanya. Mm-hmm. Yes, her, who she, who nearly gets killed in a head-on collision with an eighteen-wheeler. Yeah. Uh, did they use it while they were in the car in that scene? Uh, like the like the snap, like the rack, the fo- rack focus. Uh, no, no, I think I think it was just. That maybe his depth perception is kind of thrown off, and you can definitely tell that he's not 100% lucid in this scene. Yeah. Um, so, but we'll come back to that scene in a moment. And the first, like, indication, the first interaction we have with the killer, Robin Williams, is that much like in Memento, <laughs> a ringing phone goes off. And our main character picks it up and has a conversation with them. And by the way, I, I love the. The tool that he know he uses with the sound in the hotel room, the sound and the lighting in the hotel room, the sound of the telephone, yes, and of the alarm, yeah. You can tell he he told his audio technician to just crank, crank it all the way up, which is a great tool. Yeah, and then in this movie, and even at the end where it's like the last night he's there, he tries to make his room as dark as possible. Rachel comes in asking, like, why are you making so much noise in here? He's like, well, it's too fucking bright in here. It's like, no, it's dark. And she turns on the light I, switch, and you hear really hum. really bright. And you hear the hum of the light bulbs. And you just feel like you're, un- you're under a magnifying glass at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, it almost washes out everything else in the shot, the intensity of that light. Yeah, and even, like, early, like earlier when he goes to Randy Stentz's apartment to look for it, and he's hiding in the bathroom, and he crosses in front of the, the window. It kind of blows out on his face as well. Like, the light, the lighting becomes much more pronounced and much more apparent throughout the movie because it starts out very natural. Like, Wally Pfister and Nolan's kind of lighting techniques, like, very naturalistic. They, as the movies, they 
what did uh, going on became more and more dramatic, like especially with Inception, like the heavy use of colors, like Dark Knight Rises, everything up until this. But previously, it was like made it look like there was no quote unquote Hollywood lighting going on. Like, mm-hmm. sure, there's eye light where you can always see their eyes illuminated, but you never can tell, like, oh, there's somebody in control of shaping how this image looks right here. Um, and so with this conversation, we get the, the first hints of guilt from Walter Finch about what happened to Kate in the first conversation hangs up the following day is Kate's funeral. We find that Randy and Tanya were sleeping together behind Kate's back. And Al Pacino steals Randy's girl. <laughs> I remember that. Like, Al Pacino just stole your girl, son. How does that make you feel? Catch me outside. How about that? I mean, there are worse people that can steal your girl. Yeah, I mean, like, a David Hasselhoff stole your woman. I mean, how would you feel about that? Get David Hasselhoff. David Spade. Oh! <laughs> or David Schwimmer. Swimmingly well. Oh, shut up. I mean, like, if John Lovett stole my girl, then I'd really, like, maybe just hang myself after. You wouldn't love it? Oh, shut the fuck <laughs> up, you. Like, I, I am making a ruling right now as the pun master. No, no. Okay. I'm just going to yeah. cut it right there. Yeah, we'll see how long that lasts. Yeah, for like five <laughs> minutes. And so, Dormer takes Tanya to the dump where they found Kate's body to make her confess. After almost killing her. Yeah. Do you think he went too far? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe get him killed in, in a two-lane a- road. There's a truck. Truck! Truck! <laughs> <laughs> That's an inside joke from our old college days when we were going to Suffolk Community College, where we'd always teach her, like, get yelled at us with, like, he yell commands down to this control uh, the floor when we're shooting television, and truck right or left. And, like, somebody was like, truck, truck, ah, oh, god damn it, called cut on that take. Do you, do you remember who wasn't trucking in that moment? Uh, I think we know who. Yes. But I think for the sake of the uh, parties involved, we will not say. Yes. Um, but he takes her to the dump and gets her to confess that, that, they were, that she was having an affair with Randy. That scene. Do you think he went too far? Oh, no. No. There? No. I, I think it was appropriate and... Now, for the most of the movie, like, a lot of it's, like, shot hand, uh, shot on, like, the dolly or steady camera cranes. But, like, this, this is when they broke out. They broke, broke out the handheld, and it was, I think it was really effective for the scene. And we get to see, like, really, Al Pacino's, like, sure, he's sleepy, but he gets to a mode. He's like, we found your your friend wrapped in garbage bags! Hoo-ah! He doesn't say who ah wants this movie, but I'm just going to keep saying that regardless, because why not? Um... And I realized during this scene where David Julian, who scored the two previous Nolan movies in this, score like his scores have always been kind of atmospheric and underscore to the movie. That never you're never out humming the theme afterwards. You're never like John Williams like ba 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 da 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 or yeah. like James Horner After, stuff. I'm humming it during the movie. Oh yeah, or James Horner stuff on Star Trek or John Carpenter stuff at his movies, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. His stuff is totally underscoring, kind of plays it. Do you think 
it was effective for this movie, or do you think it was just kind of like, eh, take it or leave it? Uh, I think it was effective. There are certain themes in this movie that he does use. There is uh, a theme that I noticed um, at least twice, probably even three times, whenever um, Dormer is driving. Yeah. The, the same melody is played um, whenever that happens. Mm-hmm. So, but you're right. the The score is um, much more in the background. Yeah, you really don't have um, that many themes aside from just like the one theme, I guess, for Dormer. Mm-hmm. Um, would love to see the the liner notes or some um, composition. Score was see how how exactly he went about designing the music for this. Right, but there's I want to say it almost reminded me a little bit of um, the Batman Begins. Uh, yeah, Batman Begins, almost a little bit like that, without the yeah, but just like really background. Type stuff that fits in with like the movie. You know, there's a chase scene. There's um, up tempo strings. Right. Um, you know, um, an establishing shot. You get like long, drawn out, uh, really legato style um, notes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really atmospheric. And it's just there to be in the background and set the mood without, like, trying to grab your attention. Right. And it's because Nolan would go on to have Hans Zimmer and James Newton score Batman Begins, his biggest movie to date. He, Nolan would go back to David Julian for The Prestige. And there's a lot of criticism of Julian's score on The Prestige, saying it was not that memorable, that it was just, like, too forgettable. I've got to go back. and I've never paid attention to the music in that movie. Because you're watching closely. Exactly, yes. Well, for, yeah, the first five times I watched it was to pick up on all the little stuff that goes on plot-wise. Right. Now, uh, probably when we get to it sometime this uh, this summer... Yeah, the the music is going to be what I'm paying attention to. Right. And it's because of that sort of criticism, it makes sense why he's no one's just stuck with Zimmer since, along with James Newton to do The Dark Knight, uh, and then just Zimmer solo for Rises, Interstellar, and now presumably Dunkirk. I thought he was done with... Uh, I thought Hans Zimmer was done. What, doing scores altogether? Yeah. No, it was just superhero scores. Oh, okay, okay. Which... Which he has kind of brought up, like, in a new recent article, saying that he's not completely opposed to it. However, it has to be something very special, because you think, because, all right, he did the Dark Knight trilogy, mm-hmm. and then Zack Snyder tapped into Man of Steel, which he did, I, I enjoy, I really dug his Man of Steel score. And then he followed, with Junkie XL, helping him out with that, um, he follows it up with, Batman v Superman Dawn Justice, where it was more pure collaboration between the two of them. Where Junkie XL, who 
also had been cutting his teeth on big movies like Mad Max Fury Road, Fury Road, uh, Deadpool, one of the Divergent movies. He would handle Batman, and Zimmer would handle Superman. And then that was the initial idea. But then, of course, they just end up just because they end up in a room together. And I think how how did uh, Junkie like Tom Holkenberg, Like how do you pronounce? Like how do you say it? Like you get a German and a Pol- like Polish guy in a room or something like that, or or Swedish person together, you end up like stuff's going to happen anyway. So, um, and that's how we got the BVS score. And after BVS, like Zimmer said, like he was done doing superhero scores because he also done the Amazing Spider-Man two. As well, I guess there's something else I'm, I'm forgetting, but and so that's why Junkie XL is the only sole composer on Justice League that's coming out this year. But he's opened up the talks to it, so hopefully another superhero movie can be on the Dragon back because I think even if an argument can be made that some of his stuff is repetitive, we'll say that um, his stuff is not his stuff is definitely unique. I mean. His Wonder Woman theme in BVS, I mean, which you have not heard because you have not watched BVS yet. Right. Uh, I'll show you when we're done here and how amazing that is. But go on. Now, th- this actually reminds me. Uh, did you ever get to, like, uh, uh, the, another podcast we uh, like to listen to? Did you ever get to, I want to say, the last episodes of Oxygen? No, because... Uh, they brought up they brought up Hans Zimmer. I know we're getting up a little bit off topic, but while we're on the topic of scores and Nolan movies, I remember them bringing up up in conversation, saying that especially the Man of Steel, Man of Steel score was not unique enough. No, I don't remember that part. What I do remember is, um, they talked about, and by they, I I really mean David W. Uh, Collins. Collins, um, brought up. There was a YouTube, um, either video or a documentary mm-hmm. about um, temp music. Yes. Uh, for scores and how um, soundtrack music is never original because even in the old days, they composers would listen to classical pieces of music while they were watching the film Mm -hmm. and basically the director would pick out um, a classical piece of music to pair up with a spot in the film and the composer was supposed to I don't want to say mirror this interpret it but recreate it in as original as you can but this is the style I want the music to be in. Right. So, if you look at the Star Wars music, um, a lot of it is based on um, stuff from Richard Wagner. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I believe there's a Tchaikovsky piece that was the template for the Dune Sea piece. Mm. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is the, the music is never... Original, no. And one of the clips that they played on Oxygen was Hans Zimmer talking about um, how instead of um, him being able to listen to temp music uh, and recreating that, he can just digitally 
um, play around with the music and create it and change it as often as he wants to with mm-hmm. modern technology. Right. Uh, because really for the first time, uh, I would say the past decade or so, uh, composers have been able to just like record something and then without the luxury of having to hire it, an orchestra to play it back, can just hear it back on uh, synthetically on um, on a computer. Right. Now, there's two, two points I want to make out of that. One is that there is a YouTube and Vimeo page called Every Frame of Painting that does video essays. And one of them he does is the Marvel Sym- Symphonic Universe. Yes. Where they talk about temp tracks and filmmakers becoming too... Almost usually as a crutch, and like, and kind of sometimes, sometimes can the editing can be dictated by the track that they initially had before a composer comes in to bring in their own voice to a scene. Well, that too, and another point that I think they mention in that same video is that instead of going into um, the tons and tons of classical music out there, what directors are now doing is they're instructing the composer instead of going to classical music look up a scene from whatever movie listen to the music I want that music to be sort of similar to for this scene that we're shooting in this other movie mm-hmm. so what you're getting is you're you've got the original movie which a new movie is temp tracking yeah but that or that first movie has already been temp tracked. Yeah. So you're getting less and less creative mm-hmm. the more generations down you go. Right. And so you're just getting all these movies that are just coming out there with a very similar sounding score because everyone is like, okay, just go to this scene and take, for example, Batman Begins. Mm. I want the music for... Um, Justice League, for example, right? Uh, hypothetically, to sound like that, right? And and it's very uncreative, and it's frankly, in my own opinion, very lazy. Yeah, and and I I will admit, when I've had composers like some stuff doing some for my own shorts, I've picked pieces from other movies and said like, this is the kind of tone I want, like that. I'll go for tone, right? But you, you... I won't say like I want <clears throat> precisely that. Like, like for A Cowardly Lot, like, I gave Chris a lot of synth-based music, a lot of John Carpenter stuff, like, when we do the cutaways, like, and then I'm like, after that, I let him just, cre- he gave me a few, like, very variants on his ideas, I'm like, alright, more of this, less that, and everything, but I didn't give him, like, a specific piece, I'm like, I want exactly that, but I can definitely see where filmmakers are coming from with that way. So I think the the problem, or no, not really the problem that Nolan runs into with his movies, <clears throat> excuse me, musically, is that um, one you get instead of um, because of, of modern synthetic orchestras, right. or, um, synth- synthetic music on computer that doesn't capture the same sound as an actual orchestra would do you you hear music before it's been actually recorded and it sounds a little 
fake. Mm. Like if, if I went home on my keyboard, um, and that's an old keyboard too, so it's probably going to even sound less authentic than a, a modern day keyboard would. It would, and you play it for a director saying, this is kind of what it's going to sound like in your movie. The director's going to say, this sounds fake. Yeah. Without having the presence of mind to think ahead, how is this going to sound when you have a full orchestra mm. recording it? That coupled with um, just um, a really trend of laziness in score writing for... I hate to for them to be the poster child of it, but it really is a lot. A big problem I have with a lot of the Marvel movies is that there's no real musical score to get you really emotionally invested. With the exception, I think, between Captain America, the first Avenger, and the Avengers, because Alan Silvestri did both, and both because Silvestri comes from that classical because he'd done the Back to the Future trilogy, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, did like all the Zemeckis movies up until that point. So, and not taking any away from like Henry Jackman, who did Captain America, like Civil War, and uh, The Winter Soldier, which I do enjoy parts of Winter Soldier, but I think this is, is a question that's going to come up with The Dark Knight, is because James Dunhauen and Zimmer's score for The Dark Knight was so pronounced in that movie, and, so, and that movie was so big, and influence so many filmmakers in good and bad ways. Mm-hmm. A lot of people say, like, we just want to score a sound just like that. Going back to what you were saying before about a fake orchestra being done electronically, there's a composer by the name of Christopher Drake who has done a lot of the DC animated movies um, like Batman Under the Red Hood, Batman The Dark Knight Returns. He did the video game Arkham Origins. Now, he's a composer and an engineer. It's like, uh, And so... If he he's done like movies scores for movies and like the Dark Knight Returns score is in like my top ten favorite movie scores and that's a that's an animated movie and he did it as a digital orchestra and makes it sounds beautiful but the producer even said to him at one point like you know you're your own worst enemy because if you can do that why do you need a orchestra yeah <clears throat> but. Anyway, getting back to the movie. Sorry, we went on that kind of tangent on music right there. <laughs> so, Dormer catches up with Finch and goes into his apartment, breaks in. And this is a moment, like, I, I kind of feel like from Seven, where that Finch, Robin Williams' character, kind of left, like, a, a marker on his door to make sure if anybody was in his apartment when he was not there, he like, like it was like a piece of, like, paper stuffed in the door jam. And... Recognizes it's not there, knows something's amiss, and runs. Kind of like how in Seven, where Morgan Freeman, Brad Pitt's character, ends up at John Doe's door. They knock on it, waiting for him to respond. They hear somebody coming down the hallway. They look. Person in the shadows walking down the door. Stop, the hallway stops. Resumes walking and pulls out a gun. And starts firing at them. Mm-hmm. Both of them in, in both movies, uh, ending up in chase scenes. Now, your feelings in this chase scene and the log scene. The lock scene. <laughs> First, you got you've got a. How old was Robin Williams when this movie was shot? He had to be late forties. Yeah, still in relatively good shape. Yeah, he he looked remarkably 
young yeah. in this movie. Um, <laughs> being chased after an old and an old looking <laughs> Al Pacino Al Pacino here. in this movie. It just, I know it might be the most awkward scene in, in the movie. Right. And it ends in this really crazy, um, I guess, shipping logs or... Yeah, where they would just send logs that, like, it's a little... Down like, the river. Down the river. That's how they would yeah. used to do it. Now, one of my fears, ever since I was a child, because I almost drowned once, was a fear of drowning. And so being trapped underneath and, like, not being able to get out of the water... Yeah. It terrifies me. But not only that, but you also have this, like... version of like logs keeping under it and you're trying to get out and they slam into each other and it's the sound in that scene of like all the logs shaking and rattling through the stream uh it unnerves me and i do realize i should put like you should take that scene and put the frogger sound effects underneath it to see how <laughs> how humorous that sound that move that scene really is you know it's even funnier is how robin williams is able to cross the, the logs with no problem well, he's been he's he's got a few days of sleep. He's he's been sleeping. Al Pacino, I think his uh, nerves. He's not firing all cylinders there. Still, do you, okay. Ran, you walk up to a random person on the street. You ask him, "Hey, watch this scene. Do you think you can pull it off?" How many people are telling you, "Yeah, I could, I could probably do that." Well, probably a bunch. I mean, how many people actually could do that? Not many. Okay, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just like. Like, they would just, like, take, like, uh, ballerina music and just put on Robin Williams stuff. It's like, Dance of the Nutcracker. Yes. <laughs> and it's like how he glides across the logs and everything. So, following the following day where they agree to meet on the ferry, you know, I think this is the best scene in the movie. Yeah. And I can watch, like, I just want a whole movie of just their interactions. <laughs> because you have two masters... At the top of their craft, now you got Mr. Method over here with Al Pacino and Mr. Whatever with Robin Williams. And like we said before, where he's been Mr. Cilia his entire career up this way. Sure, he's had dramatic moments in movies where he, like, you think of Dead Poe Society or even... Good uh, Hunting. Good Hunting. Oh, God, Good Hunting. A movie that always makes you cry. Mm. And it's always that one scene... It always makes me cry. I'm not going to bring that up now because I'll have to start. I'll start welling up here. Uh, the Fisher King, he was fantastic in. Um, even like the dramatic beats that he has in Mrs. Doubtfire is really strong. But with this scene, where he admits to how it kind of easy it was for him to kill Kate, and then how I have evidence on you, you have evidence on me, we should work together. Your feelings on this scene. Really, really good stuff from both of them, and you can you can tell how much it's eating away at, at Detective Dormer. You know, he really wants to put this guy away, right? But he really is in a compromising position because of what has happened, um, both back in L.A. and earlier in this film mm -hmm. and you can tell if if he had his way he would just blow this guy away mm -hmm. and 
not be done with it. Think any less of it. Um, and the way uh, that uh, Robin Williams goes about breaking him down, you know, saying, uh, you know, it's. I think it's just uh, a wonderful scene mm. between the two characters, uh, two really great actors. Yeah, and it's it's a scene like this that makes me miss Rob Williams even more. Yeah, because I, I I'll be honest, I don't think I've really watched the many Rob Williams movies since his passing. I don't think I've really put it. I haven't gone I my saw way. Aladdin. Yeah, that's about it. I mean, like, I don't think I've re- really rewatched any of his movies. Maybe Miss Doubtfire once, but... Ooh, there. <laughs> Hello! I must look like a Yeti in this get-up. Um, but yeah, no, like, in almost like three years, I have not watched too many of his movies since, so that's interesting. But, um... And so, they agree to help each other. Um... Dormer is getting sleepier, because he's staying up and he can't get to sleep. He's just becoming more and more insomniac. Um, Finch comes in and points the blame towards Randy. Dormer is trying to trip him up in this kind of interview they got going on. The the, the local cops, including Ellie and, and everybody, and Duggar is just like, like, well, what's your deal, man? As well as Ellie's investigation starts to become more and more peculiar as it goes, and she starts to realize that things are amiss about what happened during that shooting. And here's another technique that happens because Dormer leaves the police station to go to Randy's house to find the gun that he actually used to stash back in Finch's apartment. Finch knew about it and used it to frame Randy for the murder of Kate. Now, because he's pointing the, because they say, well, point the finger at Randy. I'll get away scot-free. You go back to LA. No harm, no foul. That's their plan. Dormer doesn't want that, doesn't want that young kid to go to jail. So, he gets to Randy's apartment and starts tearing the place apart. And so we cross-cut between that search and the cops on the way there. And it's a technique that Nolan starts here and uses it again in Batman Begins. Mm-hmm. Definitely uses Inception and the, Dark, and the Dark Knight Rises in the climax where cross-cutting of two different events or three different events happen at the same time. Um... And this is a question I kind of thought about, like, after they discover the gun in Randy's shack, um, they arrest him. He pleads that I, I have nothing to do with it. Has another conversation with Finch on the phone. Do you think Finch took pleasure in killing Kate? Yes. Okay, what, what's your evidence of that? Um, the fact that when he's talking about... The relationship the two of, uh, uh, he, he had with Kate. Mm-hmm. It sort of felt like he thought it was going, um, one way towards a sexual way. Mm-hmm. And he just, he admits that, like, when he tried to get it to go there, she just laughed at me. Yeah. And it was like, he was almost like really embarrassed, was so embarrassed about it that he hit her mm. and just kept hitting her, obviously. And then we find out that like the beating took 10 minutes. It wasn't just like a few right. It's blows. not like, you know, one punch and then, you know, she just happened to 
bad luck, uh, you know, fall backwards into like something that hit her head. Yeah. And yeah, a tragedy of errors led to her death. Mm. It was like, no, he really beat the bloody pulp out of her. Right. And so everything seems to be all in the up and up. Dormer like wants to shoot Finch, but can't because he knows he just has to, he should just get out of there. And the whole movie is building up to his redemption on a something that happened to him a while ago, where Rachel, the lodge tenant, like lodge owner, like comes to see Dormer when he's making a lot of noise, trying to block out all the sun coming into his room, and he confesses to her that he planted evidence on a murder suspect. The murder suspect was suspected in killing a young child. Everybody knew he did Not it. Not just murdering a Tortured child. and molested the kid. Yes. And so, and he says, like, as soon as I saw him, I knew this guy was the culprit. and But I knew there was lack of evidence that would be able to convict him. And if there's enough reasonable doubt, he could theoretically get off. So he planted blood samples on Dobbs's clothes in order to secure a conviction. He says that's when I knew something like that was going to come back and bite me. And Rachel does not judge him for that. And probably one of my favorite lines in the movie, and he asks, like, why can, how are you so cool with that? Like, I just confess, I just confess to putting a guy in jail through shady detective work. He's like, well, there's two people who come to this, this town. People are born here and the people who are trying to hide from something. I wasn't born here. Your feelings in this confession and her interaction with him in that scene. Kind of makes you wonder what she's hiding from. Yeah. <laughs> That's like the big question. Like, what, like, like, what, what are you doing here? Yeah, what, like, wh- Who are why? you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where were the other drugs going? <laughs> well, now we know. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> she's running at the illegal drug ring out of... Uh, the Narrows. <laughs> yeah, she's, yeah, she's running all the way up in Alaska. What a criminal mastermind she is. That man will never find me here. <laughs> Go on. Um, but you're right. It's it's a good... It's a really good scene. Probably her, her best scene. She's... She's in enough scenes in this movie where she's more than just... A throw away, a throw away character. Mm-hmm. Um, she's the first, I guess, normal person they meet outside of the rest of the police force when they get to Alaska, mm-hmm. and is really the only local person that uh, he deals with that's not connected to this case. Right. So it's really like the only person. He can just talk to and not have to deal with the pressure of um, of his job. Right. And that she's very welcoming and very, like, warm to Dormer. That it kind of, like, as we, the audience, is kind of just, like, feel relaxed around here. Not, like, apprehensive. Like, why are you, like, getting up in my business or anything? And there's, there's a similarity here that... Uh, Nolan used in um, Memento as well, where uh, in this movie, he and Dormer, or she and Dormer, have that conversation uh, in his room. And then it cuts away, and the next thing we see is 
Dormer leaving his room, and uh, Rachel is um, lying in his bed. Right. And it's similar to the scene in Memento where... um, Lenny and Natalie. Lenny and Natalie. And I know we had the the conversation during that movie. Did they sleep together or did they not? In Memento, I think it's pretty... I want to say it's obvious, but it's hinted enough that, yes, they did sleep together. Yeah. Because of... They're under the covers, lying together, and they're in... Their underpants. Yes. Um, in this movie, I think it's stated... Uh, well, not stated, but you can assume that they didn't do anything. No. Based on... She's in the same clothes. Mm. Although, I guess... If she's just randomly in there, that... She wouldn't have any other clothes to be in. No, um, but I mean, but the she's lying above the covers. Yeah, I mean, in my personal experience, never got fully dressed after. This is also true. Yeah, like you're just kind of relaxing. You just put on some clothes just yeah. in case if anybody walks in. So anyway, and oh, there was another point I was going to make, and now I've lost it. We'll come back to that if need be, if you come back to it. So, Ellie realizes that Dormer faked the evidence about what happened to Hap and realizes that he shot him. At the same time, goes to see Finch at his uh, other cabin to find out that letters that Kate supposedly had saying about Randy being abusive is just lies that's going on with the investigation to point towards Randy. Um, Dormer goes out to the cabin. Ellie is knocked out and he's going to be killed by Finch. Dormer busts in and he's delirious at this point, trying to get a hold of the situation and arrest Finch. And Finch is trying to help him. Shootout incurs. Ellie tries to help uh, Dormer, like, give him cover of fire as. Finch goes from one cab to another and starts unloading on his original camera with a shotgun. Dormer, they gets up, comes up behind him, comes up behind Finch. They enter a fist fight. They both shoot each other at the same time. Dormer stumbles out. Ellie says, like, nobody has to know about Hap. And he says, no, don't lose yourself. Don't become like me. And he, redemption, if received, that's his character arc. And the movie ends... And I realized something. All three of Nolan's three movies kind of end on down endings. Mm, Yeah. Following ends with the man being hoodwinked by Cobb. Lenny will never know what he actually accomplished. And then lost his only friend here. Main character dies. Your feelings on the climax of this movie? I think this... I think the ending was the reason... Or one of the main reasons why I didn't like it the first time I watched it. It is a down ending, and... I I don't know. I I suppose uh, Dormer gets a little bit of redemption. Right. Because he does tell Ellie to let the truth out. Yeah. Um, But at the same time, it's... 
it's not that satisfact. You don't get the satisfaction out of the ending. It's not like guy catches the the criminal, saves the day, mm. and then um, you know, walks out into the sunset. And I think even even if uh, had survived, you could still end the movie on a down note for his personal story without killing him off. Right. Because of his uh, internal affairs investigation and everything else that happened leading up to the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to say his death was almost unnecessary. Okay. Do you think like the writer didn't know how to end the movie? I think so because I know earlier in the the movie they say that they wanted to get Finch alive because he they didn't think that just killing him would be uh, enough of uh, a punishment yeah. for his crime. So I guess that's why when because think of the shootout it's Ellie Gives him cover fire so he can sneak down below, go through the creek, and then pop up on the other side. Right. As a surprise attack. If it's a surprise attack, why would you just, like, run into hand-to-hand combat? Mm. Like, why not just shoot the guy and the end? Yeah. I mean, there he's already fired shots at you and your partner, so as far as a, an ethic an ethical issue, Mm. the police officer is in the right. Yes. So, I mean, it's just, I don't really know how they got to that conclusion. Mm. I mean, maybe, like, the writer thought it wasn't unsatisfactory, one person didn't think it was satisfactory, the guy got to live, like, this guy should be punished and should be wiped from this earth somehow. That could be the, from the writer's perspective. I'm not too sure. I guess, but I mean, like, he's in so much trouble with his own legal problem that even if he does survive, he's still going to lose his job, probably. Yeah, and but then you think of, going back to the conversation that Dormer has with Hap's wife, she says, don't arrest him. Right, yes. So that's it made true. it made us kind of send it on the path that you knew that's how this movie was going to end. Yeah, it's possible. But and the one thing about when they kill off Finch and Robin Williams, like body falls into the water and he slowly drifts further and further, and he, his body sinks. For some reason, I think since his passing, I found that moment to be really uncomfortable. Yeah, I don't know why. I just, I'm just like, wow, that's kind of like Robin Williams fading from uh, our lives, and like for some reason, I. I couldn't shake that feeling when I saw that. I do not know why, but who do you think was the who do you think gave the best performance in this movie? Hmm. Let's say Robin Williams. Yeah, nothing to take away from everybody else. I mean, Al Pacino, like he's consistent. He's got he, some good scenes. Yeah, but he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't. He executes. He does not elevate. Yeah, you know the problem is his scenes. With Hillary Swank are so awkward, okay. forced. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's like 
he's trying to be like a, a wise ass around her, and it just comes off as I don't know, borderline creepy almost, or like flirtatious. Nah, not really flirtatious. Just like odd. Mm. I don't know. I'd, it's a very strange l- l- relationship the, those two characters had because they're working on the same case, and you can tell that it's supposed to be a mentor-student type relationship. But there's ne- they really don't have that many scenes together in the second half of the movie. Mm. So it's just sort of whenever they are on camera together throughout much of the movie it's just like really awkward between them do you think the actors didn't have chemistry together uh, I think that I think the lack of chemistry played a part in it I just wasn't feeling the connection between the two of them mm-hmm. it's like Ellie is always really awkward and like trying to impress impress Dormer throughout the first half of the movie and then the second half she's just like really trying to play both sides of the coin with like trying to impress him but at the same time watching him really really closely to see if he's really being 100% um, on the up and up on the up and up reaching out touching hands touching you Sweet Caroline. Uh oh. Good times never seem so good. So good. So, so good. good. So, so good. good. It's funny. Uh, the last uh, review, um, last episode, uh, Dakota and I kept breaking out into song, and we even made a joke like, I should put in parentheses, like, Young Justice Season 1 review jukebox edition, because yeah. we, like, it was every five minutes we broke out into song, and we covered a gamut of, like, Lady Gaga to. I think Boston, uh, like that, like that's the kind of, and like we even threw in some hip hop in there as well. Like that's like that's the game of the music that was referenced on that episode. That sounds like you guys got ninety nine problems. And, uh, bitch ain't one. Hit me. <laughs> um, I agree with you. I think Ron Williams is the best performer in the movie. I think it's because he's because of his career up until that point that we've never seen him really go this dark, and that he's not mustache twirlingly evil yeah that he is a guy who freaked out but composed himself um and has a kind of like he has the moments of he has that thoughts of guilt about what he did afterwards when he's talking to Dormer later and he kind of confesses to him what he did and I thought I always thought that I thought that scene in particular was uh, fascinating uh best scene and worst scene in your opinion mm. Best scene, I'd probably say the fairy scene. Okay. Yeah. I would have to agree because it's just like it's an acting masterclass. You just want to watch that all day. Least favorite scene. Hmm. This is a good question. I don't know. I have to think about it. My least favorite scene. I mean... For me, it might be the first, like, kind of car ride with Ellie after they meet her. Oh, yeah. And it's just, like, I understand it's meant to be uncomfortable because, like, all right, 
if I had to meet one of my like one of my idols, I don't think I I probably mark out pretty fucking hard, and I'd be like, I no. I know this and this and this and this. <sighs> Hi, Kevin, like from SpongeBob. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess I can't blame her. Maybe it's just me. I'm looking in a mirror at that point. I'm like, oh, God, is that how I sound when I talk to people? So, you? I think whenever, um, whenever Dormer is trying to fit in with the, uh, the rest of the police crew, like, uh, they go out for dinner and drinks, and right. it's just like, like, what are you guys doing here? Yeah, it's like... Now, you think it's the fact because he's so sleep-deprived at that point? Possibly. Okay. I mean, yeah. We really haven't... talked that much about how much the sleep deprivation plays in this movie. Yeah, and it does become aggressively worse as the movie goes along... And because more and more pronounced, and I guess the real trouble for this movie is to make a movie about a person that's sleepy, sleep deprived, and do not put the audience to sleep. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the real magic trick here. Uh here's another thing: if if he's on, if he's well rested, does he end up losing, or I guess? It's technically a draw in that shootout at the end. Probably not. Yeah. He probably would have had the drop on him. Yep. Should have got a sleep mask, just saying. Or just sleep pill. There's got to be a pharmacy up there. It has to be. There are ways around it. So It seemed like a pretty uh, hop in town from, from yeah. what it is. Um, all right. How is How you feel about this movie now? In regards to the rest of Nolan's filmography. Oh, it's, it's still my least favorite. It, it may be tie with my least favorite. It's like this. Tie? Do you yeah. have a tie in baseball? <sighs> Wait, there, this isn't baseball. No. Go ahead. Go on. I, I, I mean, like, I still have a lot of problems with Interstellar. And, but for di- very different reasons. Yeah. So we'll, we'll eventually get to that. But, I mean, like that movie, like, it kind of... It reach exceeds its grasp in certain the story things they try to execute. Man's kind, uh, mankind's reach, ext- whatever the line is. Yeah, we'll get is. to the next ep- uh, two episodes from now. Yeah, so, but like this, like it, it definitely seemed like he was a, it was a job for hire because based on the success of Memento, that Steven Soderbergh and George Clooney said like recommended him for this project at Warner Brothers, and because of this movie was a critical and financial success, it led him to Batman Begins. So without this, we yeah, wouldn't get true. to Batman Begins. So I guess all the nitpicks and issues we have is it got us to theoretically probably one of the best Batman movies ever made. Yeah, the, the issues that I have with this movie aren't with excuse me the the direction of the movie it's with the script the writing the script it's really clumsy and awkward and i don't want to say george lucas bad but it's not great no um and for all for all the good scenes that al pacino has there's a lot of scenes where he looks out of place or too old or um, not suited for this role. Right. 
Um, I think if you if you had an actor who was around the same age as Robin Williams was at the time of the movie, um, it would have been something that it would have given you probably a stronger lead character, someone who instead of having like a really awkward um, connection with Ellie, mm-hmm. um, probably would have had a more natural and maybe a little bit more flirtatious relationship as well instead of just like this starstruck approach and i i've been looking for the word for the past hour of, of what al pacino's character is like in regards to his relationship with ellie mm-hmm. it's like the it's like the uh the star athlete that's like is trying to raise up this like rookie yeah who's who's with them and he just seems like almost similar to Anakin and Obi-Wan right. in the trilogy where like you can tell they're sort of on good terms but at the same time it's like they're out of step with each other are you two really on the same page not as extreme as um Anakin and Obi-Wan mm. there's no real big fights no um but there's just that disconnect. Right. And I do agree that it's kind of a detriment to the movie. And I, I am curious. I think we should watch the original now and compare it mm. to see if the story works better in the original form. Is you it can... all in Swedish? or? I'm not too sure. Okay. We'd have, we'd rather check that out. But, yeah, so definitely a, kind of like a weaker entry in the Nolan movies. You, know what you should do. We should watch the original. And we should invite Henrik Lundqvist to watch it with us. He's got a clear schedule now. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, uh, I'm going to show you a joke that Dakota sent me. That I know you're going to hate, but I lost it last <laughs> night, too. But hope everybody's enjoyed this review of Insomnia on the Anything Goes podcast. Justin, if you want people to follow you on social media, where can they find you? You can follow me at... Oh, bleh, on, bleh, I am a professional talker. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. Uh, you can follow me... On Twitter, at Justin Cirillo. Last name is spelled C-I-R-I-L-L-O. Recently, I've been venting my frustrations with Nick Holden and Mark Stahl for their traffic cone defense throughout the Rangers' playoff run, which ended last night. Mm. Um, But uh, now I should be talking more about the Yankees. Mm. And... um, Hopefully, uh, as we get into the more into the summer, more about movies. Yes, getting a little bit closer and closer to um, uh, the Last Jedi. Yes, at the end of this year. Mm-hmm. Um, got some Marvel movies coming out. I know you just saw Guardians of the Galaxy. Yes, Part Two. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know you, you gave two thumbs up. Mm-hmm. I still have to see the first. <sighs> I know it's, it's the reaction everyone Link- gives me. Shame. I feel bad. You should shame me. Shame. Send me, tweet at me, just saying shame. Yes. And everyone who's listening, just shame me. Into watching Guardians of the Galaxy. And I will probably run out to wherever the hell I need to go to pick up a copy of it. Yes. 
If you want to follow me on social media, you can follow me on Twitter at TimothyBruni2. Follow this podcast, the Anything Goes podcast, at GingerGeekPod. Follow my Instagram at TVRooney1012. My Facebook and YouTube page under Through the Lens Productions, where one of my short films, The Cowardly Lot, is up. So, yeah. And where the composer of that movie will actually be a guest on the next few podcasts when it comes to the Nolan trilogy, when it comes to Nolan movies. Uh. Because after this... It's time for a trip to Gotham with Christopher Nolan and with Batman Begins. So, hope everybody's enjoying this review of uh, Insomnia. Justin, thank you for being a part of it. No problem. Can't wait to get some sleep. Oh, yeah. it's Me too. Um, hopefully, Batman Begins will be the next podcast. There may be one to slip in between because we don't know how a recording session is for that. So, in the meantime... Keep on the lookout for this as you can follow uh, this podcast on iTunes. And if you like it, uh, give us a review of five stars as well. Subscribe to it if you want this show immediately download to you. Everybody, thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.